the Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hello, my name is Amber, and I work for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I'm the host of Season 3, where we hear directly from family-scale farmers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we're highlighting the innovative work farmers are doing to keep their farms safe from wildfire and share methods for recovery. In this episode, we're in Sonoma County, California, visiting Wild Oat Hollow, a small one-woman ranching and grazing operation located in the gently sloping valley of Pen Grove. This county has endured chronic wildfire impacts over the last six years, and the agricultural community is developing resilient skills to take care of the land and each other. Hi, my name is Sarah Kaiser. Wild Oat Hollow is the name of my farm in Pengrove, California. It's a little farm with a big vision. Sarah envisions strong local communities that are wildfire resilient and that employ ecological land stewardship practices. The ranch is me and my two children that help me take care of this place and keep me grounded. My favorite thing is being so blessed as having the capacity to take care of this land and nurture this land and be, to be so intimately engaged with it on a day-to-day basis. And it makes all the work that is ranching mean nothing because there's just so much beauty and joy in the work. Sarah was born and raised in Iowa, where she spent summers running wild on her aunt and uncle's apple farm. They had some cattle, they had some geese, some goats, horses, and it made me happier than anything else could. And I was really connected to horses, but really connected to all the animals and really connected to the land. I was naturally kind of an extreme environmentalist as a child, you know, preaching to everybody about recycling. And I got my own horse when I was 12 and took the horse to college with me and stuff. But when I came to California, (laughs) I had always wanted to have some land. And as we know, for all people who live in Northern California, landing upon some land is really hard. It's very financially prohibitive. So I was really blessed to have a friend of a friend selling this property and they allowed us to put an offer in on it without it going on to the market. And it was a little two acre place with a 750 square foot house and it was dinky and small. And and right away I got some dairy goats and then I realized, well, I'm gonna need some sheep. And then I got into the fiber of the sheep and I was just down that rabbit hole. So I started a breeding program started to show some of my fleeces, uh, became a producing member of Fibershed, which was a huge, huge support. Fibershed is a nonprofit organization that supports small ranchers and connects them with regional animal fiber systems that build ecosystem and community health. So they're the ones that came in, helped me establish a carbon farm plan, gave me seed funding to do some of the major, the first hedgerows and uh, get some, purchase some of the first portable electric fencing, supported me and showed me how to do a grazing plan and gave me one-on-one training. So those little nonprofit organizations that give you that knee in, that can give you the seed funding of a thousand or two thousand, which is what allowed me to get started. And I started planting everything I could plant. I planted trees, I planted hedgerows. I'm kind of a plant freak as well. So this place has transformed under just the planting and the animals And then I got to watch how the land changed with the grazing. Grazing provides a lot of ecological benefits, but Sarah says it has to be done in a mindful way. 
this idea of like putting a bunch of animals out on a large ranch and not managing their movement is where we don't get the big ecological regeneration. So that's why we use portable electric fencing or we have smaller acreage where we're moving them around. You have all the animals together and they really change the vegetation because you're forcing them to eat certain things, which is kind of actually going back to prior to fencing and white colonial movement, animals were always pushed into herds by predators. We're trying to mimic that, and it's very variable. Depends upon how much nutrients is going through, how many animals you have, how long they were there. And when they move on, all those plants start to regrow. They're taking the atmospheric carbon way down to the soil where it creates all these beneficial actions down in the soil and takes out the excessive carbon we have in our atmosphere, which is problematic in our atmosphere. Well-grazed grasslands and rangelands can do massive amounts of carbon sequestration when they are managed like this. So when we have tall, dry grasses, if they're not eaten or weed whacked or anything, what they do is they take all that beneficial atmospheric carbon we put into the soil and they release it back out through the dry material. Where when the sheep and goats and cows and even ungulates, deer, whoever's eating it, they process that dry matter that goes through their room and it gets broken down into manure and urine, which is a great added benefit, adds soil organic matter. All the microorganisms that are in the rumen are all full of all these microorganisms that our soil needs. So they're adding the replenishing soil organic matter. They're adding living manure into soil, which is what soil needs. Also, their hoof impact, the just little hoofs kind of knocking around on that soil, it aerates that top level of soil, kind of fluffs it up where if they haven't had hooves, when the first rain comes, it hits it like a rock. It's almost like concrete and the water rushes off, but it also takes some of that top organic soil matter with it. And so you have this depletion of your soil because it can't actually absorb the water quickly enough. So grazing actually really reduces erosion that actually acts as a better way for water to be absorbed. And there's another huge benefit that regular grazing provides, protection from wildfires. Until more recently, wildfire threats were not top of mind in Pengrove. And yet, if there's anything they've learned over the last six years, it's that fire events are more extreme and regular due to climate instability. The 2017 Tubbs fire that swept through Sonoma County was a wake-up call. We had the fire come up over the hill, over Glen Ellen, down into our valley. It screamed down the, the hill over there. and started to creep into Roanoke Park and started to creep down towards us. And we had a sheriff going around with a loudspeaker saying, get out now, get out now, get out now. And we've been watching on news. It was four in the morning. I woke up both my kids and said, pack a bag, we're leaving. I had several really wonderful people reach out to me and say we could take the goats, the animals. So I shoved them into the back of a little truck and took them to a friend's house in West Petaluma and took two to three loads, and I had to just decide who was going to stay and who was going to go. We had pigs, we had chickens, they all stayed. I took the dairy goats because they needed to be milked, took the dogs, and we got out, and we got there, and my daughter, I think, was like seven, and in her bag was like all of her stuffed animals, and that's it. And I realized, like, with the kids, everything they packed was this emotional value, I packed like clothes, like thinking you need clothes, which is, of course, the thing you can replace in a moment. I forgot my great-grandmother's jewelry. I forgot my paintings. I forgot the, the irreplaceable things were all left here. It was quite scary just getting out, not knowing what's going to happen here, not knowing about the animals, leaving as much water as possible. Like, we didn't know what to do. My pasture was very well grazed. I still had sheep up on the hill. 
I went up there and somebody else came with a trailer and the neighborhood all came out and loaded those sheep. All the community came together and took care of my animals. We were able to come back like two days later. Everybody was fine. We didn't lose a single person or animal or anything. All the stuffed animals made it back safely. But that trauma made me have some awareness of just the trauma of how fast you have to get out, not knowing what to pack, not thinking ahead. I let everybody know that hooved animals will always do better than us in a wildfire. Hooved animals can handle heat underneath them. Like if you have a guard dog with the animals, their pads will be all burned up, but the goats and sheep and cows are fine. Not to say that they all will survive a wildfire, but they can fare far better than we can. You'd be surprised. So those are tough decisions to make, but I always remind people, if you need to get out, open the gate and go. You do not risk your life to figure out what you're going to do with these animals because they will figure it out. I think we need to start allowing ourselves to make decisions based on experiential witnessing, experiential knowledge. Actually, one of the places there where the whole neighborhood burned, like the only thing that was left standing was the portable chicken coop with portable electric fencing around it because they grazed it all so well that they didn't burn. The chickens all survived. Like this is what grazing does. I mean, it eviscerated the neighborhood, but the chickens were fine. Then one of the grazing cooperatives that I've supported, the Herding Hope, they were one that lost all their homes in 2017, barely made it out. Everything was demolished. Incredibly traumatic. They all decided to rebuild, and if you ask them, it's because they were deeply attached to that land. They loved that land and wanted to rebuild, and they built their homes a little different, more fire-resistant, and they all moved back the summer of 2020. Two weeks after they moved back, they all have to evacuate because a fire was coming. And none of their homes burned, and they were able to go home, but their trauma and their PTS level, they were so jacked up, and so like, why did we rebuild? And that's when they reached out to me and started the grazing cooperative. And what they feel is more connected to the land, safer with the animals, safer with the people. With the success that Sarah observed with grazing and fire preparedness, she became a leader in the community. She was inspired to expand involvement in grazing cooperatives, a collaborative land stewardship model whereby hooved animals are shared amongst neighbors to steward their land. And she created a contract grazing and consulting business called the Holistic Herder through connecting with my neighbors and building relationships. My flock of sheep is owned by the entire neighborhood and does vegetation management and is friends with everyone and people are able to be shepherds that have never been shepherds before. And just to get people connected to the animals, to the land, to the plants that are on their land, what it looks like before and after grazing, they get to experience all those changes as I do as well. And it's fun for us to do that as a community. I think all rural residential neighborhoods are right for this kind of activity. <laughs> and I'm funded through Fibershed and Globetrotters Foundation to help build these out, to support these systems. I give them the ability to do husbandry on their own. I'm always someone to bounce ideas off of, and I never just dissolve out of their support metric. It's a lot easier when you have a community to do it with. Some of the farmers Sarah works with are economically stressed and don't have the capital to initiate a grazing cooperative. So we need to realize that we have a lot of communities in California that are barely making it. So in investment in their own land stewardship and wildfire resiliency is beyond their means. And that little upfront investment is not being funded to them. You know, they don't have the money to buy a flock of sheep. 
So I have contacts, we can make it happen. We create a system that will work for them. I, it's very critical for me to support all communities. I often use some of the grant funding to actually make some of the purchases for them. And then I have some community grazing cooperatives which are more affluent that are willing to sponsor a community grazing cooperative. I just was at a toil and grazing cooperative, which is up in Hillsburg today. They grazed their whole community, and they're talking about, look at how beautiful it is. And this whole neighborhood, they have properties from like five to 50 acres, which drops their prices down because you're covering a lot more land. We took pictures to just, we're trying to document how this community is able to do this. Also, every time they moved, we'd have a little baby goat cocktail party. They've built a community because of the goats that wasn't there before. They now take care of each other, and I'm now working on a co-grant to help open up their road because their roads are really quite treacherous for wildfires. And they have a couple of guard dogs, I think they're like peer mixes, that are really friendly because anytime you're a grazer, they got to be friendly. And they were like, the dogs were so nice. We love the dogs. This process really gets the community engaged and excited to be observing the positive changes that animals bring to the land. We culturally have a tendency to go from one extreme to the other. Instead of stepping back, looking holistically, and understanding there's moderation, there's management, there's skills, there's a way of looking at things where like, yeah, that wasn't quite right, which doesn't mean we don't do it. Maybe we just do a little different, you know? So the land needs animals on it, whether it's ungulates or ruminants or whatever. They've always been here. They're a part of this system. They're a part of these plants. They're a part of how plants grow. Ruminants, when they bite off a plant, their saliva actually makes all those plants grow back faster. Sarah says, with a little creativity, community grazing can be started in just about any neighborhood. Infrastructure is always a battle, but portable electric fencing works really, really, really well. And sometimes we have one community grazing cooperative that's just put gates in at every fence, so they don't even have to walk them down the road. So they're isn't any limitation here. It could be any rural residential neighborhood of any size. They could have 50 acres, 100 acres each, or they could have two to five acres each and share just the different animals that work in their neighborhood for their community and that are easy for that group to manage. Everybody feels happier. They feel more joy. The fires don't scare them as much because they know they have a neighbor to call. They know they have a community that will take care of them and they'll take care of their neighbors. Where before, when the fires came through, they just ran if you know what to do, if you know how to do it, if you're actively doing something that makes you feel safer, that, that horrifying heavy weight of anxiety of the summer, of a smell of smoke in the air, that starts to not happen anymore. Now it's all there, they can support each other, and the animals just do the work of keeping them all connected, and it gets these rural residential communities to adopt agriculture. So in sharing that, they all get a time to take care of the animals, they all get time to rest from the animals, the land gets time to get the impact of the animals, and then it gets rest. So they're actively practicing prescribed grazing without having to do a formalized plan because it's built into the structure of the movement. They're watching the transition of their land change with the animals eating the plants rather than weed whacking. They're getting to experience what it's like, how these grazing animals transform that fire fuel load into manure and urine that build their soil and change their flora. It is a really easy way to connect communities, make them feel safer, and bring them back into connection with the land that they live on and wanting to steward it and wanting to stay connected to that community, that land, that place. In Sarah's work with intersectional land stewardship, she works alongside two indigenous fire experts, Clint McKay and Peter Nelson. A critical piece 
is to, to bring in the Indigenous fire ecologist knowledge and pay them to guide us on how to steward our land back to healthy fire ecosystems. This land was meant for fire. This land is better with fire. So much of our seed banks, so much of our systems need fire. Thank goodness they're still willing to help us, to help guide us back to how to steward this land. Change our relationship to wildfire. We did a really large community pile burn at one of the grazing cooperatives in which all the grazing cooperatives came together and were led by Clinton Peter into doing a cultural pile burn there and getting reconnected with fire and you see the community around the fire and how really gathering that piece is. So the grazing is really important because I think it's a great way to not just think about fire fuel load reduction, but to think about ecological regeneration, to think about how do we change our ecosystem back from this annual vegetation back to perennial clumping grasses. This was all a clumping grass area with really long, deep root systems that could manage fire really, really well. So understanding the plants, understanding that how we graze is how we're going to bring this ecosystem back to wholeness and healthiness. And that's what grazing is about. So all of the areas of our land need animal impact. You just time the impact appropriately for that land. You don't run animals through a wet creek, but when it's dry, that's how the fires move. Maybe even get back to doing a little more prescribed burns in those areas. Sarah emphasizes the importance of close observation of the land and how it changes over time. Recently, she visited one grazing collective that she supports, Herding Hope. The members of the collective all lost their homes in the Tubbs fire. And I was just talking to them and I said, remember, it's been a year. How did it go? Do you need more animals? Do you need less animals? What animals worked? What animals didn't? What does your landscape look like? So this constant reconnection with your land by watching the evolution and what do we need? Every year you get to pay attention to land and your animals and watch it evolve and make different choices as a community in a collaborative way. And that's the beautiful thing about the stewardship because this land is with climate change and with gas prices and with what's happening with the food system, we're gonna need to be flexible. And that's how we do agriculture and that's how we do land stewardship. And that's how we stay safe by constant observation and constant flexibility. One of the big challenges facing Sonoma County is the concentration of ag land into the hands of a few wealthy owners. But they have no real skills or understanding of how to steward that land. Now with fires here, we as humans have an obligation to tend this land and take care of it and be the stewards, you know, attempt to be as good as the indigenous people. And instead of the affluent people coming up and buying agricultural land and then leasing that land, that's not going to work anymore. And the rancher can have access to land, do the stewardship, and it's a shared experience, non-monetized. And we're going to make sure that land ownership doesn't mean we're creating poverty through our food system. And I want everybody to know that. Like, we can do this without being owners. We need to be taking care of each other. All the pieces matter. It's just making the connections. Sarah is very passionate about grazing collectives, but she has her fingers in many pies. So I I offer a lot of services. I offer consulting services to people who just want help with tending their land towards healthy fire ecosystems, especially if they're interested in livestock being a part of that. And then I have a line of skincare products called Dandelion Skincare Products that are all from local ingredients. I, I have dairy goats and it's their milk. 
and they get organic essential oils because they make it smell pretty as well. No animals were killed for this. My soap is all also a shampoo bar, so you can get rid of single-use plastics in your bathroom. And you're supporting a local system in which we're using all of our agricultural products. You can come to my place and see my pigs. I raise a couple of cows with some friends on their 80-acre ranch. We use all that tallow. These are animals that are out doing fire fuel load reduction, that are grazing in the hills of Sonoma County, doing good work. I also make face and body creams that are made from ghee. I use my own goat ghee, which is another local sustainable product. Our skin loves animal fat. We put lanolin in it, local beeswax, and local olive oil that I sit in medicinal herbs for about six weeks. So those are some of the things, and they're on my uh, store at wildoathollow.com, but they're also at Pengrove Market, and they're at Vibe Gallery in Petaluma, and Marmalade Design in Petaluma, and Barless Feed Store. They're good folk. And tell them I sent you there, okay? In my round barn, I teach soap and lotion making classes. I'm always willing and 100% feel very strongly that we should need to pass on all the skills and information. I asked Sarah to help me understand her breeding programs and selection process. For my dairy goats, I have what are called mini La Manchas, and I love them for multiple reasons. So it's a cross between a standard La Mancha and a Nigerian dwarf. But what you're doing is you're taking mid-sized goat, because standard dairy goats can often be quite large and have higher nutritional needs, maybe be a little less resilient because they've been bred so heavy into milk production. And the Nigees kind of also bring up your buttercream, better for your cheese making and all these other things. So I love the mini La Manchas for so many reasons. First of all, they're super, super manageable, quite quiet. So for smaller homesteaders, you can have one or two of them. They're not as precocious as like the Nubian. And they're just this right mid-size in which they don't need a whole lot of calories. I mean, my goats, you know, could probably live on brows. And with three goats, we're getting about two and a half gallons of milk a day with a once a day milking. So if you don't want to have babies every year, you can literally just milk these goats once a day and they will stay in milk forever. It's impressive. They'll get fat because if you don't breed them, (laughs) they don't put all their energy into pregnancy. They do get chubby. I also breed quality weathers that go into a lot of grazing operations because my goats know how to eat. They eat everything and they know portable electric fencing. So they're already trained to that fencing and they can go out somewhere and aren't causing trouble trying to test that fence. For my sheep, because I'm a fiber girl, all the grazing cooperatives are now members of Fibershed and get all the benefits. So I have some pure Romneys, which are super tough sheep. Um, I also have some crosses of blue-faced Leicester. Then I show all the fleeces at the California National Wool Show. And my two of my sheep have won the Supreme Grand Champion. So we got some nice fiber sheep here. And they're super manageable, super friendly, follow you around like a puppy dog, and I can sell the lambs off into grazing cooperatives because anybody can handle these sheep. You've got sheep that are all good mothers, that have good fiber and can be handled and can go out to any place and do the work and be managed by newbies. And the grazing cooperatives, all their animals have the added benefit of doing this grazing work and this fire fuel load reduction, and weathers don't need a whole lot of caloric input. And if they're a fiber animal, you're getting a nice little fleece out of them as well. And 
free animals on Craigslist or um, auction animals. You don't know what you're getting. You don't know their health situation. You don't know if they've been tested. They could be really crazy and hard to handle. The harder part with my grazing cooperatives, and I understand it, is they tend to have smaller flocks and they get very attached to them. So the intimacy of these cooperatives sometimes leads to making harder culling choices, you know? So animal husbandry has that emotional piece that I also tell people, don't break your heart to do this work because it's not sustainable if you're making decisions that break your heart. If you got to keep this weather because he's so sweet, keep him. Let him be a part of your grazing operation. Sarah values local and sustainable food economies and supports these through her purchasing power and policy advocacy. The best way to support your farmers is to buy directly from your farmers, buy whole or halves or quarter animals. You get a better product. The meat is so much better. The chicken eggs are better. The chicken's better. Like, and they're out in the sun getting vitamin D, living this great life. It, we need to really start emphasizing quality, not quantity. Confined animal feedlot operations are not viable entities long-term. They just aren't. But it's really, really simple to co go back to a system in which we can feed our animals off the green systems that we grow during the dry season. For Sarah, the animals are the answer. And there are simple systems for supporting them. So I highly recommend for everybody with sheep and goats, the electric netting fence from Premier Fencing. They have the best fencing and the easiest solar units to build out for small scale when you don't need a ton of power. So yes, I use solar units with batteries. They're highly effective. You can plug them in and charge them if you start to get a lot of drawdown, like if it's the middle of winter and you're not getting a lot of sun. The first couple times you put them up, you're gonna wanna quit. Don't quit. The first couple times are the hardest and then it just gets easier. I mean, it gets so smooth and easy. So stick with it and try it and if you, are struggling, just call me and I'll come help. That's what I do. <laughs> CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org forward slash the farmers forward slash. That's B E E T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. Be sure to check out Wild Oat Hollow on Instagram at Wild Oat Hollow and share the episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at calf underscore fam farms to stay up to date on what new episodes are released and see more pictures from the farms featured in this podcast. This podcast project was funded by a grant from the American Red Cross. The Red Cross is a not-for-profit organization that depends on volunteers and the generosity of the American public to perform its mission. For more information, please visit redcross.org or cruzrojaamericana.org or visit them on Twitter at Red Cross. Are you a farmer interested in being on a future podcast or have a question related to this one? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org.